should ask yourself who taught you to hate being what God gave you. Welcome to the Nahe Podcast. My name is Tuana, and today I have a very special guest with me, Aaron Starr. Before I begin introducing him, I quickly want to say a few things about Dunahe for those who are new. Dunahe Podcast aims to introduce you to unique perspectives with the help of our guest speakers from different backgrounds with the same mission, creating a hate-free society. Dunahe is a 501 a C3 nonprofit organization and a social platform run by students with a mission to contribute to efforts and the goal of resolving lingering problems in our society related to hate. Uh, we seek to develop public awareness for diverse cultures, beliefs, traditions, and opinions, and basically unite different points of views on common issues and um, try to encourage people to engage in solving shared problems. So that being said, I'm so excited for today. Um, today, Aaron Stark is with me. You might know him from his famous TEDx talk titled, I Was Almost a School Shooter, which now has more than 12 million views, actually. Um, I remember when I interviewed him around three years ago, it had 6 million views. Uh, so it's so amazing to see that it's continuing to blow up and inspire others like it inspired us three years ago. He's also an advocate, author, and a public speaker. Today we'll be talking about his childhood, uh, events that led him to almost commit a horrible crime, the power of friendship, um, kindness, love, and the importance of acceptance. Um, first of all, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and being with us today, Aaron. Thank you for having me. I, it's my pleasure. Um, as I mentioned before, you're a huge inspiration for us. Actually, two years ago, um, after I've done an interview with you, I shot an independent short movie for YouTube, and it's basically all about your story. <laughs> Maybe I'll send you the link after our interview. Um, yeah, I would love to see that. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, you inspire us so much while, you know, running Do Not Hate, but you also inspire me like on a personal level, since every time I watch your TEDx talk or read one of your interviews or basically think about your story restores my faith in humanity and it keeps me going. It makes me work harder for our cause. And it reminds me that what we try to do uh, every day matters because your story is all about acceptance and overcoming hate with love. Uh, you're the example of coming from a disadvantaged background. You were abused during childhood, um, exposed to drugs. You've moved from one place to another, changed schools frequently. Um, and here you are achieving remarkable things and being a source of hope for others. So I already introduced you a little bit, but I want to dive into the beginning of your story, actually. What kind Absolutely. of childhood did you have? What kind <clears throat> of house were you born into? Oh, it was really, really bad. Uh, we had, we moved around a lot. It was a really crime-based household, I guess is the best way to say it. My parents were drug addicts and um, 
were it was a lot of domestic violence. Um, my my birth father, who was around till I was like five years old, I described living with him like it was like a Stephen King novel, like mm-hmm. the, every, every kind of horror you can imagine, like sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. Uh, we ran from batter woman shelter to batter woman shelter to get away from him. Um, I have memories of like him beating and raping my mom in front of me when I was a baby and things like that. And then as I grew older, when I got to about five, my mom left him finally and got with my stepdad, but it went from a Stephen King movie to more like Scarface. So it was a lot of crack, crack cocaine and, and, uh, stealing things. And they would, it, um, we, we ran the reason why I moved around from place to place so often was because they were either running from the authorities or getting evicted. And we were just trying to survive running, bouncing between Oregon and Colorado and all places in between. And I, I went to 30 or 30 to 40 different schools. So many schools I can't even keep track. Mm-hmm. It was the, the it was kind of like a nomadic uh uh childhood would be the best way to describe it very, very nomadic where we bounced around from place to place didn't really have any stability and i was um fat smelly comic book reader i um that's really the only thing i kept with me whenever we would there were multiple times in my life when i would have someone bust through the room bust in the door at like three o'clock in the morning and throw a duffel bag at me and say here grab all your things we, we need to get out of here and mm-hmm. the only thing that i would take with me was my comic books um mm-hmm. i was a huge huge reader i started reading really early <clears throat> so i was um really into uh superheroes and x-men and things like that and so that was kind of my escape, but it, the, I, I was, I was always kind of the black sheep of the family. I had an older brother who was two years older than me and he was kind of the brunt of most of the responsibility. He had to do, he had to take care of me a lot. And I think because of that, I got a lot of uh, cast down abuse from him because he he was he went through a lot of the same abuse I did, and then I got attacked from him because he had to take care of me because during it, and so it was, it's was a weird dynamic. And then as we as I grew older, that uh, darkness being told I was nothing, told I was worthless, it just I kind of just adopted that as my persona and made myself as unappealing as possible. And started like I I became really dirty, really smelly, um, really vulgar, really offensive with my language, and mm-hmm. just tried to do everything I can to like shove everybody away. And that was just even when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I was purposefully kind of the dirty, smelly one already. And then as I turned into a teen, that started to get even worse the pain the the abuse at home and the chaos at home just never seemed to stop and one one true thing is that when you hate yourself enough you do everything you can to make everybody else agree with you and that when you told you're worthless enough you eventually will completely believe it 
Mm-hmm. And so I believed that I was the worthless one and I was nothing. And that, and I was in that place where anybody that told me that I was a good person or anybody that tried to like give me any kind of help, they were obviously lying. And so I did everything I could to push them away because they weren't seeing me either. And so got to be when I was around 13, 14 years old, I started leaving home because I just couldn't take the violence anymore. There yeah, was, I was actually going to ask that. So at some point, I, I remember from your interview, you ran away from your home, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, ran away, yeah. combination of ran away and getting kicked out. Yeah, com- combination oh, yeah. of those two. Yeah, and you were homeless for quite a while, and I I just want to ask this question because um, there is one important thing there. You were homeless. You said that you were either you know going to kill yourself or do something about your situation. Uh, it was that point for you. Then mm-hmm. you made the brave decision to call the social services. Actually, however, mm-hmm. they also called your mother, and she took you back home. Uh, yeah. Then she told you something you know so cruel, which you still remember even to this day because you mentioned it in your TEDx talk and I want to listen to that story because even though it happened back in the 90s you know it's a huge example of how we systematically fail the most innocent and valuable part of our society which is children can you tell us how you decided to make the brave decision to you know seek help call the social services and how it failed basically yeah well, uh, there, well, during all that time that I was bouncing around from place to place, I had well, one place that was kind of my home base. Um, his name was Mike, and he was kind of the one spot that he, he lived a complete opposite life that I did. He lived at the other end of a block that I lived at one, during one of the houses we moved into. And we bonded over comic books, of course. And he he had a very stable and loving family, and they were very supportive and they still live in the same house to this day and all that. And so he <clears throat> he was kind of my home base. So when the abuse got really bad at home and I had been out and living on the streets for months and months, I had been homeless for four or five months at this point. And on out on the streets, I was bouncing around from places from um from friends' houses, and I say friends in quotes because they weren't really friends. I more considered them disaster groupies. They were the kids who were just kind of there to watch the car crash. They were just there to watch all the chaos and damage of my life. They didn't really have any of their own, so they're kind of living vicariously through my own damage. And so they they weren't friends. So when we would sit around and talk, it was really toxic. Instead of talking about like girls or parties or what we're gonna do for fun, we talk about murder and we talk about how much damage we could do. If you're going to kill people, what would you do? It was this. It was a bunch of people, a bunch of disturbed and abused kids trying to find their way through depression with no guideposts whatsoever. And so, when that whole um, living situation, when that whole living situation temporarily crumbled, because I was just, it was like I said, a bunch of really chaotic, destructive kids. It it was very short term, like everybody's sleeping on couches and stuff. And so um, Mike's at Mike's house ended up being my home base and I couldn't go live at home anymore because the violence was just too intense. And so I, and I couldn't actually sleep in Mike's house because my parents wouldn't let me inside anymore because I was smelly and dirty. And every time I sat on the couch, they had to clean it. And so I was in his shed and Mm -hmm. he had been sneaking me down food. 
for a couple days and I was cutting myself really bad. When I was around 13, 14 years old, I started cutting myself because that was the only emotion I really had any control over. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about this. Yeah, um, I, I, you're I, very I, open about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that people, more people should be. I think that the hiding, not talking about this kind of thing, is, is, is more toxic than more people can even realize at all. Um, I, I was, I uh, during that time, I described my life like it was a tsunami of pain, like this big hurricane of destruction that was just swirling around me, and I didn't really have any control or any really agency over any. Like I didn't have any control over what my parents were doing. Didn't have any real control over where I was living. I was too young to have a job. I was, I was bouncing around from existence to existence, just barely trying to scrape by and survive. And, but my, my life felt, I, I told everybody around at the time, I told everybody that I was around that I felt like my life was a movie that I wasn't a star in. I was just watching my life just pass me by. I was just an audience member to this really terrible movie. You're in that, that tsunami of pain and anguish that cutting myself was the only way that I could feel like it was, it was the only emotion that was like mine. It was, it was, I didn't have any control over anything else, but I had control over that. And so I started cutting myself and at first it was just superficial, just light cuts. And, but in the shed, I was really in a dark spot. I had had a really bad explosion of, of abuse with my mom. We got a giant fight. Um, my stepdad and everybody giant drunken fight. And so I was in this shed and to picture the scene, there was this like gray puffy recliner chair, like a big lazy boy style chair. And the roof was oh, like wood slats with gaps in it. So like rain was pouring down into it you know, like two or three o'clock in the morning. This was just the start of winter. So it was really cold and really rainy. And it's just pouring down. The chair's covered in cobwebs and dirt. And I'm cutting myself so bad that there's a pool of blood on the floor in front of me. And I think I have to do something. I got to get myself some help. I got to do something. And over the years, one of the reasons why we had moved from place to place was the social services had tried to intervene to try to try to stop or try to get my mom for what was happening. And so I knew that that might be a support. So I got up and I knocked on Mike's back door, asked his mom for some for a, some bus fare and the phone book. And she let me have a couple bucks for the bus. And I called the, bus, the um, social services office and set an appointment for that afternoon. But it was like six or seven in the morning when I made the call, but the appointment was for late in the afternoon, like four or five. And so when, by the time I got there, they brought my mom in too. And we sit down and they ask me what, what's wrong. And I pull out a bloody razor blade, one of those square style razor blades that's like mm -hmm. a box cutter, like a box cutter style. And I throw that on the table and it's still still bloody. And I say, that's what's wrong. I'm, I feel like I'm going to, I feel like I'm at the bottom. I feel like I have nothing left at all. There's nothing left for me whatsoever. And my mom, who had spent years perfecting lying and telling them exactly what, knew exactly what to say to get them. And she get them to believe that I was just making it all up and that I was just doing it for attention. And that I, it was all just, that I was just doing it for fun, basically. And they mm -hmm. sent me home with her. And they sent me home with her. And as we sent me home, we were driving away and got a couple blocks away. And she turned to me and snarled and said, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. And I just kind of snapped. 
and that that you think I'm a monster, well, I'm going to be the monster now. And I just kind of ran headlong into that dark. And for the next months, six, seven months, it was just scorched earth. I was just burning down every possible thing I could possibly get my hands on. Any relationship I had, I was destroying it. I was ruining every possible friendship, any possible support system. During that time, I broke into every family member's house I could get a hold of and got into their photo albums and burned and destroyed every picture of me I could get. I was trying to obliterate myself from history. And so at, so, that, at that point, you started to, you know, transform your, you know, pain into anger and hate. Yes, I, I did. I was hating everything. I was hating the entire world. And so that continued for a couple months. And I ended up alone in a field behind the restaurant Casa Benita, mm-hmm. which is... If you ever, if anybody ever watches that show South Park, that, was, that I did a whole episode about Casa mm-hmm. Benita. That, that's the restaurant that I'm talking about. I was right behind that restaurant. Uh-huh. And, and oh, now, wow. now, nowadays, there is a, an apartment complex, but mm-hmm. at the time, there was an open field. And so I was in this field and I was at the absolute bottom. I had been living on nothing but uh, stolen food and sleeping in the field for weeks. I hadn't had a shower in a month and a half or so. I hadn't changed my clothes. I had was wearing shoes with no socks that I hadn't taken my shoes off for a couple of weeks. So my feet were literally rotting off my body. I was absolutely at the bottom. And I'm thinking, I got to do something. I got to get myself some help somehow. Last time I warned them I was going to come and that was terrible. I'm not going to warn them I'm going to come. So I got to do something. So across the street from the school that I was at at the time, I was at in quotes again because i'd never attended but i was enrolled there um was was a building that said mental health and so i went in and i don't really remember what the young lady who was the counselor told me because the only thing i really remember was the last thing she said which was i'm sorry there's nothing i can do i can't help you and i walked out of that social services office and my brain just completely shattered and Mm -hmm. That that hurricane tsunami I described earlier, I found out what was at the bottom of that. Mm-hmm. Underneath all of that hurricane, and at, underneath it, it gets really quiet and it gets really still, and that's the scariest place ever. That is that right there was when all of those those stories I had talked about with my friends about murder and what we were going to do, how mm-hmm. would you kill people? They just crystallized into plans immediately. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask that. Like, when did you first start having thoughts about shooting up your school? Like, specifically, how did your, you know, pain transform into anger and you made that plan? Yeah, that, well, the plan itself came to do when I was just sitting around with my disaster groupie friends. When we would talk and just, we would be like, well, what would you do? How would you, how many people would you kill? What would you do? And so we would kind of like, fantasy football for murder in a way and Mm -hmm. so the plans the plans had come out just in conversation so when when i walked out of that social services office and my brain just broke i knew right then that i was either going to go through the the doors the windows through to the food court in my school or i was going to go through the the food court in the mall and Mm -hmm. kill as many people as possible yeah, and I my the goal was to kill as many people as possible and die while doing it, and 
the the only difference between the places I was going to attack would be the time of day that I was going to get the gun. Mm-hmm. And I knew where to get the gun because there was gangbangers that were hung out of the school. This was in mid nineties. So gangs were still a really prevalent thing. This was like boys in the hood era. And so the, they, and they brought pistols to school all the time. So I, I knew that they had access to guns and they had sold drugs to my family and they knew that I wasn't a narc or anything. Like I was sleeping in the field and sleeping mm-hmm. in the park or at the school. I was obviously not a cop. And so they, I walked up to him like, Hey, can you get me a gun? Hopefully one that shoots a lot of bullets. And the guy's like, yeah, give me an ounce and I'll get you one. And that part was easy. Getting an ounce of weed at the time, which in mid nineties, that's like 300 something dollars worth of marijuana, but it wasn't anything for me because mm-hmm. I, that my went into my mom's house and druggy sleeping on the floor. I stole an ounce out of his pocket and went down to the dude and gave it to him. And he's like, all right, give me three days. And so I was set. I was, uh, I had my plan. I knew what I was going to do. The instant I got the gun, I was either going to attack the school or the food court. And I was on my way. And during that time, I, looking back on it now, I didn't think of it. I was doing it then, but looking back on it now, I think I was saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. I think I was, I think I was saying goodbye to different relationships and like turns mm-hmm. shutting off parts of my life. And I went to Mike's house and when I knocked on Mike's house, Mike's door, he answered and he didn't know what I was planning. He didn't know anything about what was going on, but he saw that I was in the worst place that I had ever been in. And he had seen me in some terrible places before. And he brought me in. He's like, dude, you're going to be okay. You're not a monster you're you're a good kid you're he used to tell me that i was a good kid in a crap world he used Mm -hmm. to tell me that all the time he used to tell me that all the time he didn't say crap he used other words but Mm -hmm. he would tell me i was a good kid in a crap world and he brought me in and sat me down and i I had a meal had a shower and he treated me like a person Mm -hmm. and when you treat like a person when you don't feel like a human at all it literally changes your whole world Mm-hmm. that was the day you at like planned to you know shoot up your school right mm-hmm. yep. and this was happening in back in 1996 i think no late 96 early 97 right about okay. yeah mm-hmm. you also mentioned you know previously even like during all those difficult times you had one person by your side which was mike your friend mm-hmm. and he did not, you're always telling, you know, in your interviews, he did not come to you with overbearing kindness, but he basically, yes. you know, asked you if you needed a meal or if you wanted to watch a movie. And, you know, like these sim- simple acts saved your life as you were it. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, like how those consistent acts of kindness slowly healed your pain over the years? So the reason why it's not um, overbearing kindness that does it like, and what I mean by that is it's not the, I have a project I'm going to get you into. I have this social, I have this, this system. I have this, I have this uh, doctor, like that, that kind of stuff as helpful as it would seem to the person who's trying to help to the, to the person who's, who needs the help can be just as depersonalizing as the person who looks at them like a monster. Because in my life at the time, I was either something to be fixed or something to be feared. I either, either you were afraid of me or you wanted to fix me. I was either broken or a monster. I I wasn't a person either way. 
And what Mike did was treating me like I was actually a person, like saw all of me, didn't see the dirty, smelly, broken, fat kid. He saw the, the sensitive comic book reading, loves musicals, like just what every at the at the end of the day, all of us just want to be told that we're okay. We all just want to be told that we're we're good, we're good people, and we're going to be okay. And I didn't know it then, but that's what I was really craving, and that's what I wasn't getting anywhere. And that's what he gave me was just a simple, you're going to be okay. And when you don't have that in your world, it's unimaginably powerful to actually finally finally receive that kind of personal validation that reminds you that you're a worthwhile person that even deserves to breathe. Because the scariest part of being at that bottom, the scariest part of being in that spot where everything's still and all that emotion, the reason why it gets still is because there's nothing left to hate. There's nothing left to hurt. There's mm-hmm. there, the, the reason why you get angry is because you think something should have been better and it wasn't. And so you got mad. But when there isn't any hope anymore and you don't think that there's any better, you don't think that there's any, all you see is black. And when you're in that spot, that's the most dangerous place to ever be because when you when you have nothing to lose you can do anything like you what are you gonna do you're gonna cut my arm off okay you're just gonna hurt me that's just okay i'm gonna die so what you're gonna put me in jail that get that i get a i get a meal and a roof that's an up for me like there's when when there's no more bottom that there that's the most dangerous place to ever be and what he showed me was that I could pick myself back up and that, that I wasn't as alone as I thought. And sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes having just that one person to be the island in your ocean of chaos can literally, mm-hmm. literally save your life. And he's still my best friend to this day, like still my absolute best friend, uncle mm-hmm. to my kids. And I tell my wife, me and my wife laugh about it, that he's the one person in the world that if him and my wife got in an argument and he called her a name, I'd be like, well, baby, what'd you do to make him call you a name? <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about after basically that year, how you started to, yeah, and that, you know, that, change. And that's the part too, because that's the part that really gets asked about. So I thank you for that. Um, it's actually one of the biggest portions of it, of my own personal recovery was this process that I went through of, of acknowledgement, where I went to the people that hurt me and acknowledge what happened, not in an accusatory way, which was a big big part of it, to make sure it wasn't in retribution. It wasn't to say, you hurt me, you did this, and you need to pay. It was just, Mm -hmm. you did this, this happened, this changed our relationship fundamentally, our relationship is different forever from here out, and that's just the way it is. And it had nothing to do with the person I was talking to res- response. For example, a small example that I can give was I had an aunt. Okay. She was my stepdad's sister and she was a massive alcoholic. She was a massive cocaine addict, massive crack addict. I had watched this woman crawl through my carpet in my living room, looking for crack rocks. She had tried to kill herself on my front lawn. She was just 
one of the most toxic and abusive people that I had ever met. And she was, and we were sitting at a bar and I was actually working as the bartender at the time. And she was doing that kind of offhand public nicety. Oh, he's my nephew. He loves me. And I, I said, mm-hmm. no, I don't. And that kind mm-hmm. of shocked her. And she said, no, you love me. I said, no, really, I don't. I don't love you. I, I, I'm sorry that you're under that mis- misunderstanding, but I don't love you. And that was one of the first times that I actually confronted it and, and, and broke mm-hmm. through that barrier that I could, I could have just smiled and kept the fiction. Yeah, sure. I love you. You're my aunt. But no, I don't. That's not the truth. You started standing up. Yeah, for I started standing up for myself and started started asserting the actual truth. And the truth of the matter is, you were abusive, you were toxic, and you've done a lot of abusive things to me. And I don't love you. In fact, I have a lot of disdain for you. So I'm not going to be your friend anymore, and I'm not going to be your nephew. And that it was it. It, had, and it caused a lot of chaos, and that was because it was one of the one of the first mm-hmm. times I did it. But that was started a process where I saw that that was really transformative. And that's why a key portion of it was to make it not retribution, to make it not, because then you're just evolved in a contest and it's not a contest. It's not about the other person. It's not about tit for tat and getting back at the people that hurt you. The, the, the pain that I existed in happened and I'm the one that had to deal with my reality from here on out. And the only way I could get myself out of that hole was to realize that I was worth it and that I could get myself out mm-hmm. myself. And I had to do that. I had to drop the baggage of my past because it, it's important. I tell my kids this. It, I look at the, the, your past like luggage. You can carry around the luggage and you can drag it around and around within your arms and pull it around with you. And it hurts and it, it, it drags on the ground and it pops open and spills everywhere. And you have to pick up all your stuff and put it back in the bag and then drag it around some more. Or you can set it down and walk away. And the bag is still there. If you want to turn around and get a shirt, you can get a you can get a shirt, but you don't have to carry it with you constantly. And you don't it doesn't have to define mm-hmm. who you are. And that's was it was a fun that was a fundamental step for me. So I went through a, a multiple yeah. year process of that acknowledgement. And Mike again was a huge, huge support that whole time. And without him I wouldn't have been able to accomplish it. So so since we talked about abuse, I really want to ask you this question because there are children being abused somewhere we have no idea mm-hmm. about still. And we might see these, you know, children in schools, on social media, like any gathering place, really. And you were one of those kids. One. Many people around you did not realize mm-hmm. that or they chose to ignore. And they chose to see you basically as a problematic or maybe even a dangerous kid. However, your friend who saved your life realized that you were in pain and you often talk about how it's useless to see kids as a threat or danger to society and encourage us to basically embrace them and say, you know, love the ones you feel deserve mm-hmm. the least because they need yes. it the most. So why is it important and how can we realize if a person sitting in our classroom or workplace or anywhere is in the same situation? today and most importantly you know what would your advice be regarding how to approach them well the biggest thing to realize is that person on the edge it's it's much better for everybody involved to pull them in from the edge than to push them further out so as with that as your base you have to know you have to first 
realize that everybody wants to be acknowledged and everybody wants to be treated like a human. So that that what I mentioned earlier is a big step to listen to the person when they talk. Listen, listen to that kid who's quiet. Listen to the one who who feels like they're that kid who's sitting by themselves, that one who everybody's picking on, that one that everybody's pushing away, or the one who's actively pushing everybody away too, the one who's trying to make themselves toxic, the one who's trying to make be the troll, the one who's trying to be as mm-hmm. outwardly aggressive as possible. Because Mm-hmm. He's also trying to find his own sense of reality and his own sense of of identity. And mm-hmm. when I mentioned earlier that we're all searching for, to feel that we belong and we're all searching to be told that we're okay, if in that search we find someone saying that we're okay, but they say it that you're going to be okay, but first that person has to pay for it, then you're going to make mm-hmm. that person pay for it. So. There's a there was a phenomenon when I was going from school to school, I would have a bullies every school I went to. Okay, I was the fat, smelly kid, so I'd always have bullies. So, but I would also have a counterbalance. So, at any given school I would go to, I would have five or six bullies on one side, but I would also have on the other side four or five kids that would kind of balance it out. You know, like you're not that bad, trying to keep the bullies away. At, at any given school, that would basically be what would happen. All right. So, but nowadays we have this subculture where that kid who's the bully, now he wants to be the best bully possible. And he gets tips on how to be the best bully, gets rewarded on being the best bully, and then gets tips on how to be an even better bully than that. And so it's you get all the positive reinforcement that you're craving from somebody saying that you're okay, but they're saying it by you being the worst thing possible. <clears throat> so you become the best worst thing you can be. And it turns into this self-fulfilling thing where you become the best troll. You become the the most toxic you become the most um offensive and and that person is just looking at the end of the day they want the same thing that i wanted and that you want and that the person listening to this wants is that they want to be held until they're okay the, it, it's hard for a lot of people to admit that it's hard for, for boys especially to admit that that what they want is emotional and what they want is to be held and told that they're okay. But I guarantee you a 100% of the time, that is the case. The, the, when the, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether they're finding it in a toxic subgroup or they're finding it in a fan group or they're finding it in the sitting by themselves and being isolated, they want someone to tell them they're okay. And so Another thing that happens is when you are that person who's trying to help, and this is an important point, is that when you're that person who's reaching out for that kid who's trying to help, they're going to push you away. That, that They're going mm-hmm. to shove you away. They're going to test you because everybody in their life tells them that has, that has tried to help has lied to them. And what I mentioned earlier, that people looked at me like I was something to be fixed. If, when everybody in my world was telling me, that oh I'm broken oh and I got this subject this thing for you oh but you're really good but I got this this program for you to be in it was completely depersonalizing and and to me it was they were just as fake as the other people who looked at me like I was I was broken you want to mm-hmm. be is the one person who's not that you want to be the person who actually sees them for the real them and who survives through all of the tests because they're going to test you and they're going to try to shove you away and they're going to try to make sure that you're the one person who's not faking the funk and the one person who's going to stand through all of the crap and can actually exist. And if you can do that, then you can be their mic. 
you can be that one person that will stand there and you'll change their life forever. And that one small thing that you did for them 20 years ago will end up being the thing they're telling their kids about and they're telling millions of people about. Because if you ask Mike what he did, he'll say nothing. He'll say he only did, mm-hmm. he'll say he'll, he only did what a friend should do and he only acted the way a friend should act. And to him, it was nothing. And to me, it changed my mm-hmm. entire world, changed my whole life so much that I owe him every bit of my existence. And to him, it was literally just a Tuesday. Thank you for this sincere advice. Uh, we're getting closer to the end. I'm really curious about this because we're all trying to play our parts in peace building, but... The thing is, the journey to defeat mm-hmm. hate with love is very challenging. Is. So I really want to ask you, what inspires you every day to continue fighting for peace? What inspired you in the first place to, you know, speak up about this? Well, see that that's actually a question I don't know if I've ever been asked. I've I've been asked how. I've been asked what happened when I first talked about it. So I've told the story about like me writing the first post and all of that, but I don't know if anybody asked me what inspired me to talk about it. And that I think when I was watching the the Stoneman Douglas massacre here that happened down in Florida in 2018. And I, I saw the media in particular, and I saw the way that they were immediately going to the kids who were, the victims in the school shooting and they were shoving the microphone into the victims faces and they were asking them what they thought of the school shooter. And they were, but by the second day after the school shooting, when I wrote my post, the school shooter had become this label, this monster that was just this kind of villain that there wasn't any humanity there. There wasn't any, it was a character that the news in particular had taken and ran with and turned into this gigantic caricature of what a child is. And as terrible as the act was, which is absolutely terrible, and as evil as the act was, which is Mm -hmm. absolutely evil, the kid who perpetrated it was a kid. There was no way that he had more than five years of being a person. Yeah, we were really focused on that subject as do not hate. And the thing is, of course, it's no way of, you know, justifying the act yeah, or no. anything like that. But like his past is also full of yeah. abuse. And, 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 and until you're until you're yeah. until you reach the age of reason, which is around 10, 11 years old, mm-hmm. 10, uh, you, you're mm-hmm. not even a person. You're a blank slate that's controlled by the adults around you. You don't have any control over anything. You don't have control over your meals, your bathrooms, your sleeping arrangement, your nothing. You don't have any agency over your life. You're a kid controlled by the world around you. And so until you reach the age of reason, when you finally discover your first likes, your first dislikes, your, like you first get your girlfriends or, or your, even your friends, you, mm-hmm. you first get your, your, you know, the books you're into or the music you're into, mm-hmm. until you first discover that, you don't know anything about what's going on and so he didn't have a chance to have more than five years of even being a full person before this happened Mm -hmm. and so to take that and to immediately make him a supervillain every time they asked the kids about the 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 shooter they gave act they gave actual Mm -hmm. reasonable responses 
like, yeah, he had been mean in our classes before and we were trying to stay away from him because he had been aggressive and been attacking people in our classes. They were giving reasonable responses, but instead of trying to dig even further into that as to why, because if, again, if you got a five-year existence as a person and you've already spent three years of that attacking people, why did you get to them? What built you to that point? And instead of even attempting to do that, they immediately made him into some kind of mastermind supervillain. When even if you're looking at school shootings and you're looking at, if you're looking at it, and this is going to sound cold, but if you're going to look at it like an, an, an actual attack, he was one of the more bumbling, fumbling attacks. He, he, he wasn't like a super well-planned out, super well-thought-out kind of Columbine-style pipe bombs rigged kind of thing. He was an explosion of rage and hate. And what happened there? You know, like, and that's why. That's why I first started talking about it, because I couldn't figure, I couldn't wrap my head around why they were making him a supervillain. And I could, I could see myself in that spot. And then I thought about all the other kids who are like that and what it would have been like for me to be in school today if, if when I was in high school. Months before I would have planned any attack, I would have already gotten the FBI called on me just because I scared somebody. And they would have already, they would have already ruined my life because that mm-hmm. it's... You, we label that kid in the dark, that, label, that that one who's on the edge, as the dangerous one. And what the adults don't realize is the amount of effect they have. If if you're the kid in high school, and you know this as a student, if, if the social dynamics in high school, if, if you are labeled as an outcast by your peer groups, and you got that one kid who's the weird kid, okay, he's going to have, you're going to get up to 70% or so of the student body is going to think that kid's the weird kid. But you're still going to have that counterbalance because it's a student-led thing. But if the teachers say that that kid's the threat, and if the administration points out that that kid's the threat, then you're going to have it across the board. You're going to have 100% across the board, and and there's no Mm -hmm. way to come back from that. There is no way to come back from being labeled a threat by the administration. That, that's just a tag you're going to carry with you forever. And I, I don't think that the adults in the administrations realized how much effect they have incidents and how much they were dismissing the actual real-world intelligence they could be getting from the students on the ground who are telling them flat out, look, this is what happened. We see this. We're not stupid. We see what's going on. And nobody was listening to the kids. That problem right there is literally the reason why we started Do Not Hate. And again, after that Do Not Bully project, which we run in middle schools and Mm -hmm. high schools, our failure as a society, school shootings are our failure as a society. There's no other explanation. Yeah, no. And someone asked me the other day, I did an interview two nights ago. It was actually in in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And they asked me... uh, um, what what is it about America? Is it guns? Is it the is it gun control? Because there's gun control laws. And I said, well, actually, I really think that as as important as gun control laws are, I think that's a small section of it. I think it's more the gun fetishization and the violence, the violence fetishization, mm-hmm. where where what those peer, those social subgroups that that I was discussing, if if you combine wanting to be the best troll with extreme violence then you that's where you end up with QAnon and and incels and you end up with people like 
like Elliot Rogers. And you end up with that kind of the, the, I want to be the best troll and I'm going to kill a lot of people to do it kind of thing. And that, that kind of self annihilation, it's, we have to figure out a way to reach them before they get to that point. Because once you've decided to annihilate everything, there's no turning back. Exactly. You're hundred percent right. So, um, this is actually my last question to you. I'm going to wrap up soon, but so this is very important for us and for our audience also. How do you think as young people, youth can make an impact when it comes to improving our society and all the things we talked about? And since, you know, we're the future building stones, basically, what is our role? To remember that the people that we see, uh, you see across from you aren't the stereotype that you, th- you put in your head. They're actually humans that that the person who even and this is a, might sound controversial but even the person who commits the attack up until you pull the trigger you're not a monster up until you actually do the attack you're just you're a person in pain and you're screaming out for help and we there's there's a very small sliver of people amount of people who actually fall through with it there's a gigantic amount of people who will who are in that gray spot who could who would or who think that they should and that those are the people who we can reach and the best thing you can do is be that rock that doesn't get shoved away when that hurricane of chaos is pushing that person around make sure that you listen to them treat them like a person give love to the ones who you feel deserve it the least because that person at the end of the day after the chaos has subsided you will be the one who saved their life you'll be the one who stood by them even when they couldn't stand by themselves. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation today and being with us. It was such an honorable opportunity for me and for our audience as well, I believe, to listen to your story and thoughts on various topics. And I also want to thank you specifically for your sincerity because, you know, when we were emailing back and forth regarding the details of this episode, I told you that, you know, I'll be sending the questions to you uh, in case if you want to edit any of them. And you said, you know, there's absolutely no need for that. There's no restricted topics or any question I try to avoid. So thank you so much again for your openness. Absolutely. I I really Um, think that the, the more we can remove the stigma from people talking about this, the more we can make it normal to talk about things like self harm or self hatred or self loathing. The, the more we can finally combat it because I've, the more I've found after talking to everybody, I've, I've been, I've had talk conversations with people all over the planet. I have talked to people from in every kind of social level from every kind of, from the super rich to the super poor. And it is the same conversation that that sense of self loneliness, that sense of self isolation, that sense that you don't belong even in yourself, that is damn near universal. That is almost everywhere. And it might be the only truly bipartisan thing we have that can, can that can break through the barriers of whether you're left or right or conservative or or liberal or or Democrat or atheist or Christian or whatever. And it shatters through all of that because at the end of the day, we're all humans who just want to be held and told that we're okay. And if we can see ourselves as that instead of the labels that we put ourselves on, then maybe we can start to to bridge this divide that seems to be splitting us apart.
This is where we end the episode. If you enjoyed our podcast, you might want to come back. We'll be having amazing speakers in the upcoming weeks. We publish an episode once in every two weeks on Wednesdays. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as donahate.org. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast, please send an email to podcast at donahate.org. Or if you would like to volunteer with us, please uh, shoot us an email um, to volunteer at donahate.org. See you next time. Right on.